Uh, it's funny how preachers have different definitions for some words than the rest of us do. Uh, and one word in particular that we preachers have a different definition for, if you haven't worked this out by now, uh, you should have, is the word finally. Uh, not Luther, of course. Luther's different. But he's laughing at himself there. But uh, have you noticed how preachers about 20 minutes into their sermon say, and my final point, or finally, and you think, oh, wow, I might get home in time for, or I might go get that coffee or whatever, and then they just keep going for another 20 minutes. As I say, none of our preachers here, but if you've been at other churches, you'd know <laughs> this is the case. Uh, we learned it from the very best. This is the thing. Uh, look at what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Everyone got their Bible there in front of them, by the way? Anyone need a Bible? Wake up your hand now so you can uh, follow along. One person needs one mic. There you go, there's one Bible and one person. It's like a perfect moment of God's providence for us. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, open it up, and here is the Apostle Paul. Remember, he is writing the inerrant word of God. And he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Then you look at it and you say, but hang on, you're only halfway through, Paul. You know, we've still got two chapters to go. And you're saying, finally, uh, what, what sort of this, what is this? Is this just sort of preacher's license? But jokes aside, I think what he's saying here is, this is it. This is the point I'm aiming this whole letter about. Uh, this is the point I'm aiming for you. This is the thing I want you to take away, and that is rejoice in the Lord. Uh, and that is my prayer for all of us here. If we take one thing away from these studies in the book of Philippians, I'm hoping we take lots away, but if you just take one thing away, that's what I want it to be. Rejoice in Jesus. That has been the theme of the book. And it's not just rejoice in Jesus, it's rejoice in Jesus whatever your circumstances. Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing this from in a prison cell, and yet he says, I rejoice in Christ. He's writing to a church who aren't sort of living it up, who aren't living it easy. It's a struggle to be a Christian in this place called Philippi. It's a struggle to be a Christian because people are abusing them for being Christian. People are persecuting them for being Christian. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. Because that's what knowing Christ enables us to do. Knowing Christ enables us to find that true joy, to find that true peace, that true contentment, despite our circumstances, despite our situation. See, all too often, we search for joy and contentment and meaning and peace and all those things in the transitory things of this life. Uh, our mood is set by our circumstances. If life is going well, we're joyful. If life isn't going well, well, we're not joyful. But here the Apostle is saying, whatever your circumstances, whether life is on a high or whether life is an absolute struggle, remember that you are citizens of heaven. Re remember that your eternity is secure. Re remember that Christ Jesus is Lord. Remember that you are saved by him. So whatever your circumstances in this life, you can still rejoice in Jesus. That is the message of this book. That's what I want you to take away. Go and put it on a, on a thing somewhere. Rejoice in Jesus, whatever my circumstances. That's what he wants us to get. Finally, rejoice in Jesus. But then having made that sort of massive point, it's like there's this sort of jarring of the gears, uh, this jarring change of tones in what he says next uh, in verses 1 and 2, because he launches this angry attack 
in verses 1 and 2. Have a look with me. He says, To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Do you hear how angry he is as he's saying that? He's just gone from rejoice in the Lord to this moment of absolute anger. It was funny, at one of our morning services this morning, the lady reading out the Bible, uh, I don't think she had prepared in advance. Don't put that on the tape in case she listens. But anyway, uh, I don't think she prepared because as she got to it, she sort of balked and looked and said, is that what it says? The Apostle Paul is calling people dogs in the word of God. But he is because he is so angry. What could get him so angry? What gets you angry? I was listening to the radio the other day in the car and there was a segment on what gets you angry and everyone rings in and says what gets them angry and the first call was about banks. Banks charge too many fees. I had to wait in a queue at the banks. Next call was about driving and something that happened on the road. And then the next call was about banks and driving. And bank. That's what gets people angry today, banks and driving. There you go. If we got rid of banks and we got rid of driving, no one would be angry. It's easy. Uh, what gets you fired up? It's not a particularly edifying thing to think about. Just think for a What really gets you angry? I'll tell you what annoys me, what gets me angry. It's when I get stuck behind someone on the freeway and I'm travelling at 100 in the 100 zone, so I'm keeping the speed limit, and they're travelling at 90 and it's meant to be 100. So that gets me a little bit annoyed and then I overtake them and it's like a breath of fresh air, that's fine. And then we get to that 80 section and then they come past me still travelling at 90 in the 80 section. There's something inherently unfair about that, that they're breaking the law and yet they're getting there faster than me. And I, that gets me angry, which just really proves the point of how petty I am, really. Uh, but the thing is, there were people there amongst you nodding, as I said that, that that gets you angry. You see, so it's not just me who's so petty. Uh, and what it actually proves the point of how trivial of so many of the things that get us angry are, just how trivial they are. And you see, because the thing is, most of our anger actually just expresses our selfishness. That's what anger is. We get angry because someone else has got away with something I didn't get away with. We get angry because, because someone else has infringed upon my rights. Because uh, someone else doesn't realise that I'm actually the most important person in the world, not them. That's why we get angry. We get angry when our pride has been hurt, when our desires haven't been met. And that anger is always sinful. Don't try and rationalise it. Don't try and work out on that verse where it says, in your anger, do not sin. So you can be angry and not sin. No, 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 it's sinful. That's what it is. But in the Bible, every so often we see this thing you call righteous anger or godly anger. And that's an anger that comes not because we've been hurt, but because God's name has been torn down or because the weak have been oppressed. You see it when Jesus goes into the temple. You know that part of the Gospels where Jesus goes into the temple and the money changers are there using his father's house as a place to make money. And he goes in and he throws the tables over and he drives them out with a whip. That is a righteous anger because he's not angry about himself. He's angry that his father's name has been denigrated. And here, the Apostle Paul is angry with a righteous anger. And he is angry because he has become aware of people who are coming into churches and want to take away the rejoicing that Christians have. They want to stop these Christians rejoicing in Jesus. He's angry because these people have come in and what they're trying to do is tell these Christians that Jesus alone is not enough that they need Jesus plus 
something else if they want to be made right with God, if they want to be righteous. That's what he was angry about. And you see, that's the key question of this little passage, Philippians 3, 1 to 11. How can anyone be good enough for God? How can anyone, as the Bible talks about it, be righteous, right with God? Because uh, you see, most people think we can be right with God by doing stuff. That's what most religions teach. If you do enough good things, religious or otherwise, and they outweigh all the bad things, then when you stand before God, there'll be this sort of cosmic scales in heaven. And if there's enough good religious and otherwise stuff to outweigh the bad stuff you've done, then God will say, you are righteous enough for me coming to heaven. Uh, that's what these false teachers were saying. And it has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with Christianity. See, what happened was when the gospel was first preached, as the Apostle Paul and others went out from Jerusalem, wherever they went, there were Jews claiming to be Christians who followed them. And wherever they went, they'd come in afterwards and they would try and re-educate the people in places like Philippi and they would say to them, Jesus is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apostle Paul, exactly right there. Jesus is absolutely great. We love Jesus. Yes, Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But if you want to be one of God's people, if you want to be right with God, then trusting Jesus is not enough. See, the Apostle Paul actually lied to you. He, he said that's all you need, faith in Jesus. But they say, no, 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 you actually also need to become a Jew if you want to be right with God. You need to obey the Old Testament law. What you need is Jesus plus, if you're a man, and men got the rough end of this deal, you need to be circumcised as well. That's what he said to them. That's why he says they put their confidence in the flesh. He's being very literal at that point. Their confidence was in the fact that a religious ritual that moved, removed a part of their skin was done to them. I just have to tell you this at this point. I was once in a class with some, uh, they were about year seven or eight guys at a boys' school, and uh, they were talking about circumcision. And this uh, young fellow said to, uh, to me, he said, but I don't understand because God promised Abraham he would have lots of descendants. But then he said you had to get circumcised. And I said, yeah, what's the problem? And then I realised he thought everything was cut off in circumcision. So... <laughs> It was a slight problem there. If you don't know what circumcision is, go home and ask your mother and father after tonight. Um, I'm not going to go into it. But the point is, their confidence was in the fact that this surgery had happened, that this religious ritual had happened, that they'd had part of their flesh cut off. Their confidence was in that. Now, why is that such an offensive thing? You might think, yeah, I, that's annoying. But why was that such an offensive thing? Why does that get him so angry? It's because if we put our confidence in the flesh, we are denying that Jesus' death is the one way to be right with God. And that is offensive to Jesus. It is horribly offensive to Jesus. Say, do you know you didn't actually need to die? Because if we just did enough of these other religious type things, we can be saved anyway. You see, he's angry because whenever you say you need Jesus plus, whatever it is, it leads people away from trusting in Christ alone. It takes away people's assurance of their salvation. 
people start to think, well, well, if it's, if it's Jesus plus, have I done enough of the plus? What, what else do I need to do? Can I be certain that I'm saved? I can't. And you see, the very essence of the gospel is that we do nothing to save ourselves. You see, what do we bring to the equation? What, what, what do we bring to God? All we bring is the problem. That's what we bring. We bring our sin. We bring our need for forgiveness. And it's only by Jesus' death on the cross that we can then have that. See, it's the essence of the gospel that salvation is by faith alone. Not by faith and what I do, but by faith alone. By trusting in what Jesus has done for me. It's not faith plus the good things I do and then somehow God will say, oh, you've done enough, now I'll accept you. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone, that anyone is saved. If you look there at verses 2 and 3, just look at those verses with me, what he does is he turns their arguments on them. You see, they would have said, Gentiles are like dogs, unclean in God's sight, dirty animals that that have no place in, in God's family. Uh, They would have said, Paul is an evil worker telling people that they can be saved by faith when actually they need to do these other things. They would have said, uh, you need to have your foreskin cut off if you want to be a part of God's people, if you want to be righteous. So the apostle says, well, actually, you are the dogs because you are the ones who are unclean in God's sight if you're trusting in yourselves instead of in Jesus. He says, you're the evil workers because you're leading people away from trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And you, well, as for your circumcision, well, given that it does nothing and achieves nothing, all you're actually doing is mutilating people's flesh because it does nothing good for anyone. That's what he says what he does in verse 3. Look there with me. Uh, This is a really, really important verse, so work hard with me on it. He says, for we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, Boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. See, Paul's saying, I don't care what happens in your flesh. The true sign that you are one of God's people is not some surgery on your flesh. It's surgery done on your heart. That's the sign that you're one of God's people, that you have a circumcised heart, that God's spirit is in you. And you don't boast in your flesh. You boast in that. You boast in Christ Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you. Now, as I talk about this, I think we might say that's interesting history, but this isn't our issue. Uh, I am not aware of any home groups at Church in the Bank where someone sort of sidles up to people and says, uh, you know, uh, Luther and Phil have been lying to you. You know, you actually need to get circumcised as well, and we're going to run it after after supper tonight for anyone who's interested. If if that is happening, I imagine the small group is shrinking in size, especially amongst the male members. But the... The point is, this is not our issue, is it? That's our danger. We think this is not our issue. But I want to say the underlying issue is our problem. Because, you see, we are always tempted to think that we can be made right with God by what we do. Because that is what makes us feel better about ourselves. So we've been learning that being a Christian involves humbling yourself, involves saying, I'm not good enough for God. But it actually makes us feel better about ourselves if we think, you know what, I'm pretty good and all Jesus does is just sort of top me up and get me over the line. I'm actually good enough to please God in some way with these things we do. 
And so that leads us to the next heading there on your outline. Religion and goodness cannot make us right with God. And what he does here is he uses himself as an example. Uh, I'm going to ask for a, a confession time here. Who watches The Biggest Loser on TV? No one willing to... No one of... Brave, oh, a couple of brave people. This, this, I'll just warn you now. I said this this morning and one person put up their hand at one of the services. And then as I started talking about The Biggest Loser, all these people go, yeah, yeah, that's what happens. And I go, ah. Oh. So we have a lot of liars and one truth teller in the congregation. <laughs> but there you go. Uh, I imagine, because I haven't seen The Biggest Loser, whether I'm tr- telling the truth or not is up to you, but uh, I imagine it's just like one big Jenny Craig commercial. Is that right? Is that what it is? I don't know. It, where they have before shots and after shots, you know, and that sort of thing. Well, what the Apostle Paul does here is he gives his before shot. He says, this is what I used to look like. This is what I used to be like. This is what I used to think. And what he says is, I used to put my confidence in the flesh. I used to think that I could impress God and say, here are all my religious accomplishments. You should accept me. And he says, and if anyone could have said that, if anyone could have been saved that way, it was me. Look with me from verse 4. He says, although I once also had confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. See what he's saying? That is my pedigree. And no one can compare themselves to that. I am more Jewish than any of you, he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day like the law demands should happen. More than that, I can trace my lineage back to Benjamin, back to the son of Joseph, back in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible. More than that, it's not just my bloodlines that trump you. I have kept the Old Testament law better than any of you. If you want to talk about that, look at this. Look at what he says. He says, regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He's saying, I was the strictest of the strict. I was a Pharisee. I didn't just keep the law. I came up with extra laws around the laws just to make sure I didn't even come close to breaking a law. More than that, I was zealous. When this Christianity first came along, I didn't follow it blindly. I went out and persecuted the Christians. I killed them. You want to talk about confidence in the flesh, you've got nothing on me, is what he's saying. And then he says, and it's always the most important word in these sort of Bible passages, then he says, but. But then I met Jesus. Then I came to know Jesus. And I discovered that no matter what good works I do, they can never make me right with God. They can never wipe away my sin. They can never pay the price for my sin. You see, but Jesus can. And Jesus says, do not come before God and say, look at what I've done. Do not say, I can earn my own righteousness. Jesus says, instead, I will give you the gift of righteousness. I will declare you right with God. I will take your sin onto myself, even though I don't deserve it. And I will take the punishment for your sin upon myself, even though I don't deserve it. And in return, I will give you my righteousness. And so when you stand before God, instead of declaring you guilty as you deserve, God will say you are righteous and he will welcome you into eternal life. 
Not because you've earned it, but because you've accepted my free gift. And so the Apostle Paul says, I used to put my confidence in the flesh, but not now. Just look from verse 7 with me. And I think these are some of the most wonderful verses of Scripture. He says, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. In your small groups this week, do me a favour and really look at those verses closely. Those three or four verses there. See what he's saying? He's saying, now that I know Christ, now that I have that gift of his righteousness given to me, all of those other things, all of those other things I used to think were so impressive, I count them as loss, as filth, he says. Our Bible translators like to make it seem nicer than it is, but Paul was actually really earthy. The word is literally dung. He says, everything else, I flush it down the toilet because it is of no use to me at all in comparison to knowing Christ. Everything else, I realise all those things I thought were so impressive, my Jewishness, my, my keeping of the law, my generosity, my gifts to charity, my, my, my circumcision, they are just filthy rags compared to knowing Christ. Do you notice how he, he doesn't say, they decrease in value? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say they're less important to me now and, and now it's just Jesus is a bit higher than them. That's not what he says. He says they count for nothing because all that counts is knowing Christ. That is all that matters. And so here is the question of tonight's passage. If you're a note taker, write down this question. And that is, do we know this? Do we consider everything else rubbish compared to knowing Christ? Is our confidence before God in Christ alone? That's the question of this passage. Or is our confidence in the flesh, in ourselves? Now, as I said before, I, I wouldn't imagine there is anyone here greatly tempted to place their trust in their Jewish bloodlines or in their circumcision or in their fact they've never eaten pork. Uh, if there's someone who struggles with that, we'll talk about that separately on our own because I don't think that's anyone here's struggle. But can I say, as I said before, the underlying issue is our struggle because even if it isn't circumcision, every person's natural inclination is to put their confidence in themselves rather than Jesus. Sometimes it's in our religious achievements. We con ourselves into believing that God will be impressed with us because we were baptised. Uh, sometimes it's because we think God will be impressed with us because of the, the denomination, that's a hard word to say, when we were born into. Sometimes even good things, and I think this is a struggle for us here, sometimes even good things play this role. It's an irony that good things can take us away from Christ. Sometimes we put our trust in our ministry involvement. Our confidence before God is not in Christ alone. It's in the fact that we've faithfully served teaching Kids Plus for three years. You see, because my doctrine is pure, because I give more to support gospel work than other people, all good things, all good things we should be doing, 
but not things that should be the basis of our assurance before God. They are rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus. Do you know, I think our more common problem for us, because we're so saturated by our world is though, that we sort of just start to boast in worldly things. See, at the heart of this is asking questions of where do you put your confidence? What makes you who you are? What gives you your identity? And we, I think, often start to boast less in Jesus and more in our worldly respectability. And so I, I think our danger is we're not so crass as to boast in our wealth or anything like that, but we ba- boast in our balanced respectability. We boast in the fact that we're not publicly seen to be ungodly. We, we just boast in the fact that we live respectable lives. But the apostle throws down the challenge to all that. He says, do you know what? Even all those good things. See, it's not just his religious things. He says everything. Even all those good things, they're rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. See, to apply this passage, we need to ask ourselves some questions. And again, if you're a note taker, maybe jot these down to think about later. The first one is that old chestnut that I ask everyone who does Christianity explained with me, which is if you died tonight and God said, why should I let you into heaven? How would you answer? And if your answer is, God, you should let me into heaven because I, then you don't know Jesus. And you need to hear this. If you say it's because I went to church, because I lived a good life, because I served leading Kids Plus, because I was on parish council, because I, if that's our answer, because I, then our confidence is not in Jesus. Our confidence is in the flesh and it's in ourselves. The only answer that counts is, God, you shouldn't let me into heaven. But you promise you will because of Jesus. You see, I don't deserve it. I'm a sinner who only deserves your judgment. I have nothing that I can put before you to say why I deserve your salvation. But because Jesus died for me and rose again, you offer me the gift. You offer me the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, the gift of righteousness. My only hope, my only boast is Jesus. Because when we put it as starkly as that question, if you've been at church for any length of time, we know the answer, don't we? We know the answer in our head. But I think the temptation to put our confidence to boast in things other than Jesus is more subtle than that. See, I know in my head that I'm saved by Christ alone. But the other questions I want to ask is, but do I boast in him? As the hymn writer says, is he my only plea? Or do I actually really deep down put my confidence in other things? See, there are other questions to ask ourselves that tell us where our confidence really lies. Questions like, where do I find my identity? When people ask, who is Phil Colgan? What is it that defines me? How do I answer that question? What are the things that I'm proud of? What are the things I want people to know about me and that I value more than anything else? The answers to those sort of questions just give us a hint as to whether we truly boast in Jesus. You see, I am not a minister. I am not a husband. I'm not a father. I'm not an Australian. I'm not an Anglican. I'm not a disappointed Raiders supporter. I am a sinner saved by Christ. That is what I am. That is my identity. 
That is what I am, a sinner saved by Christ who because of that longs to serve Jesus. And you see, this is the beauty of it. When we understand that, that it is in Christ Jesus that he is our only plea, that liberates us and shows itself in being a faithful, whatever it is you do for your job, a faithful uni student, a faithful teacher, a faithful accountant, a faithful minister, a faithful husband, a faithful father, a faithful child. Whatever other roles we have, we're liberated to do them well because they are not the things that define us. They are not the things we find our contentment and our value in. That must come from Christ alone. And as I say, the thing is, when we understand this, it is liberating. See, you do not obey God out of fear. There is nothing sadder than a Christian who obeys God out of fear. We do not do things. We do not try to be godly because we hope that that might earn us eternal life. I just said Italian life. It might earn us Italian life, but it won't earn us eternal life. Where's Alex? That's your fault, because I was talking about Italian before. Where is he? There you go. That's your fault for telling me about Italian classes. Sorry, I'll blame you later. Uh, We do not do it to earn Italian life. We don't do these things because we think we can earn... Did I say it again? It's been a long day. Cut that from the tape. I'll say it in a different way. We do not do it to hope to earn enough credits to avoid hell. That is not why we do the good works we do. We do not live with doubt about whether we will be righteous enough for God. What is the Christian reality? We rejoice in the certainty that we are right with God because of Jesus. And what that does is it liberates us to serve him with joy, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but with joy. And more than that, it liberates us in the rest of life. When you don't need to find your sense of self, find your contentment, find your joy in your career, that is a wonderful thing because you have it in Christ Jesus. It liberates you to put your work in its proper place. You work hard as if working for the Lord, but then you leave it behind. Because it does not make you who you are. Christ makes you who you are. When you don't find your contentment and reason for being in your family and in the success of your children, because you have it in Christ, it liberates you to devote yourself to doing what really matters, loving your family and seeking to build them up in the knowledge and love of Jesus. When you don't find your contentment in your house or in your bank balance or in what the other people at school or uni at work think of you, It's liberating because you can devote yourself to what really matters, being a wonderful witness for Jesus, not comparing yourself to others all the time and instead living a contented and generous life. You see, the Apostle Paul practiced what he preached here. Because he knew he had everything in Jesus, he literally gave everything else up. He doesn't make the same call on us, but he said, I will not have a family. I will not get married. I will not have children because I can do more for the cause of Jesus without them. He gave up his ethnic heritage. His Jewish culture declared him a heretic. He gave up worldly security. He lived hand to mouth, wandering around the place, telling people about Jesus. And as I say, he did not do that because he felt he had to do it to earn it. He did it because he already knew he had everything in Christ Jesus. And so everything else was rubbish 
compared to that. See, knowing Christ motivates godliness in a way that laws never will. This is one of the great truths of the gospel. It's funny, sometimes people come to me and they say, out of genuine love and concern, what can we do about Fred? I've chosen the name Fred, by the way, to protect the guilty, because uh, I looked through the whole church role and we don't have any Freds. We've got to get on evangelism of Freds. We don't have any in our whole church. Uh, but you see, people come to me and say, what can we do about Fred? He just doesn't seem to get it. He just doesn't seem to understand what it means to follow Jesus. He just doesn't seem to prioritise church. He doesn't seem to want to meet with other Christians. He just doesn't want to seem to serve other people. And the temptation is always to try to fix Fred with laws, to resort to religion, to make Fred get it. So Fred, unless you're at church every week, you are not a Christian. Fred, unless you give 10% of your income, you are not a Christian. But the thing is, laws and threats don't change anyone. All they do is create guilt and hypocrisy. Because what Fred does is he, put on, he puts on a front just to keep you off his back. See, laws don't change the heart. What does Fred actually need? What do we all need? We need to know Christ better. That's Paul's prayer for you. If you look at the final couple of verses, that is his prayer. Because if he knows Christ better, he'll want to serve Christ. He'll want to be generous. He'll want to be godly. See, the reason we count everything else as loss is not because they're bad things. It is not because they're rubbish in and of themselves. It's because we see how wonderful Jesus is in comparison. And that's what I want you to take away from this passage. There's only one thing that changes a person, and that is truly growing in our knowledge of Christ. That is my prayer for you. I hope it's your prayer for each other. We want to so know Christ... And so know the power of his resurrection that we will count everything else as rubbish compared to what it means to know him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that like the Apostle Paul, we might know and grasp a hold of that wonderful truth that we are saved, that we are made right with you by Christ alone. Help us never to fall into the temptation of trying to be made righteous by what we do. Instead, with the Apostle, we pray that we might consider all else to be rubbish compared to the wonderful joy of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. And we pray this in his name. Amen.